football soccer plan, fans this past week. I don't, I don't even want to mention those because they're so heinous and false and based on lies. So I'm not talking about those. What I'm talking about is just mainstream stereotyping. Um, Yale psychologist Paul Bloom says, the reason you don't walk up to a toddler and ask a toddler for directions, and the reason you don't ask a very old person to help you move a heavy piece of furniture is because you stereotype. And actually, stereotyping helps us navigate our social world. So we actually form schemas. So like if I walk into a room full of people, I will use my social party schema that I have formed to decide, is this a formal business gathering or is this a party? It helps me navigate. And I do have a couple of statistics on stereotyping. And so I do have some sources. So if you're curious about it, feel free to ask me afterwards. I can let you know the source. But in Psychology Today, there is a published report about the accuracy of stereotyping. So actually, sociology, psychology has been doing research on the accuracy of stereotypes since the 1960s. So it's got some brevity to it. But then a couple more recent published um, statistics for us. So 94, there was a stat that was published that said that when participants were interviewed, they either um, were accurate or underestimated gender differences. And then in 2009, there was another publication that said... Um, that stereotyping accuracy is one of the largest and most replicable effects in social psychology. So that means like somebody else could pick up that study, do it, and get the same results, which means it's pretty sound research. And then the last stat was, was as recent as 2014, and that one just said that um, stereotypes have been shown to be moderately to highly accurate for observed social groups within cultures. But that doesn't mean there aren't limitations and negativity attached to stereotyping. I think one of the hardest things for stereotyping is when you take an accurate generalization and then you try to define me as an individual by that generalization. It just makes me feel robbed of my individual dignity when you think <laughs> you know who I am by this generalization. And there's been debates on the research in stereotypes on whether is it biological factors that contribute to stereotyping and their accuracy or is it environmental? And if you want more stats on that too, I can give you that at the end, <laughs> but just um, general high level to say modern psychology, so sociology has landed on both. Both things contribute to the accuracy of stereotypes. But the fact that stereotypes are accurate from both biological and environmental factors doesn't render them socially benign. You know, I don't think any of us need research to understand that stuffing complex human beings into categories that at the same time are too broad and too narrow to justify all manner of conduct can cause harm. Um, and I think that's the biggest error we probably do, is we try to use generalizations to define individuals. So I, I did want to give one example. So there's an accurate stereotype that men are more violent than women. So um, both biological and environmental factors would likely go into that stereotype, and it's accurate. However, 
that doesn't mean you can take that general stereotype to define the man next to you or to define yourself as a man. What it means is, if I'm doing research on pharmacology and I want to test a drug therapy or a counseling therapy to see if it's effective on the most violent in our population, I could willy-nilly throw out all the females, just interview men, and with statistical accuracy, find the most violent people. That's what it means. It's not meant to define individuals. And that's where we often err, when we don't know others and we try to define them by generalizations. We do it in our society today, and it was a problem in Rome as well. So that bulk of the passage that Emma read for us, 18 through 32, is an accurate statement about people who deny God's power that is clearly evidenced through creation, and instead of worshiping him and his power, turn to created things, to idols, and blatant immorality. Painful, destructive immorality follows. That's a true record of what happens. But there's a second thing going on in that passage as well that Paul really ingeniously through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does. That's also a stereotype about the Gentiles that the Jews held. So you can see by the language that wrath of God from heaven, that's a Hebrew language. And if you look at other um, ancient Hebrew literature, Wisdom of Solomon would be one, there's almost identical stereotyping about the Gentiles. And that makes it clear it's not a passage written to the Gentiles to warn them about idolatry and immorality. It's a passage written about the Gentiles. There is accuracy in that passage. Gentile people groups, in general, did not worship God. You know, I can think of the Mayan civilization that daily would sacrifice people to make sure that the sun came up, or Babylonians, or the record of the Egyptians in Exodus. They were not worshiping the true God, but turned to other things, the image of God like Pharaoh and created things, and immorality and suffering resulted. But it, it doesn't define every Gentile, because if you read in the Old Testament, we see Gentiles who are God-fearing and used by God to accomplish his plans and purposes, like Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabite. Not only were they used by God to accomplish his plans and purposes, but when we see the earthly family lineage of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, Rahab and Ruth are two women Gentiles who are listed there. And when we go to the New Testament, we see people like Cornelius, a God-fearing Greek, and others who were used to help the Jewish nation. And even if you've been reading in Romans, just the next chapter over, Romans 2, Paul talks about Gentiles who obey, the, who obey a natural law in their mind and form a law or a Torah onto themselves. So it's not meant, this stereotype, the accuracy of the stereotype was not meant to define every individual Gentile that a Jewish believer would come across. And I think the strongest textual clue of who this audience is and the intended meaning of this passage comes in 2.1, the last verse that Emma read. 
where it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's writing to this judge who sits in judgment of others and yet practices the very same things. Yes, there's accuracy. Gentiles in general did not worship God as creator and turned to idols, denied God, and suffering and immorality followed. But so did the Jews. If you read the book of Exodus, what is it, like 40 days later, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, that they make a golden calf? God had constantly said to them through the book of Exodus, I am the Lord your God who delivers you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who delivers you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who delivers you out of Egypt. And they make this golden calf. And what does Aaron say to the people? Here is your idol who delivered you out of Egypt. Word for word. I'm sorry, but that's almost like flipping God the middle finger. And then in Ezekiel, the leaders of Israel come up to Ezekiel for help, and God says, I am not talking to you about any of these issues you have. I am only talking to you about the idols you have in your heart. The same thing that they were condemning the Gentiles for, they did themselves. It'd be kind of like, you know, if you're a Democrat and you're watching these impeachment inquiries, you find yourself opposed to Republicans and the president, and you're watching a condemnation of the moral failures, and you're like, that's right, that's right, condemn them, that's what they deserve, and then it turns and you find out you're included in that condemnation too. Paul's talking to the judging Jew who thinks he's sitting there or she's sitting there in a white hat and everybody else has on black hats, when in reality, we're all wearing black hats. But the stereotype about the Gentiles for the judge, the judging Jew, not all Jews, the judging Jew, did a couple of things. One, it kept believers from coming together by creating an us versus them mentality, a divide. It put specific individuals in the churches down. The Jews were actually the marginalized group in Rome. If you remember, George talked about they were kicked out under Cornelius. That's why we see Aquila and Priscilla um, in Corinth, and then they're back. So they were marginalized. They were blamed for a lot of things. They were not the group with the social clout. And so it put down those with the social clout, the Gentiles, in an attempt to have more power, more control. And then probably the most significant thing it did is it hid the fact that what's true about the other group is also true about us, which is self-righteousness. And I think... I don't think this is the only reason, but when I think, okay, why? Why do we as humankind stereotype? I think one root, one attempt of stereotyping that we're trying to overcome is trying to overcome our own sense of shame. You know, as humans, we're just this great amalgamation of dignity and depravity. 
our original person in the garden was rich with dignity. That's what the naked and without shame in the beginning chapters of Genesis is showing. We were designed to enjoy intimacy. We were designed, which we still carry with us today, a desire to be deeply known and to know others. But today, more often, when we look around, we find depravity more at work in our world and in ourselves. Humans, when we were in the garden, we had everything. We had it all, except for one thing, absolute knowledge. And it wasn't enough. We could have it all, except for one thing. Having it all would also include close fellowship with the Lord, and we would not be satisfied in our human flesh. And so humankind, we chose to abandon that vulnerable position, dependence on God and his word, to strive and go after that one thing we felt we needed. And that led to our ruin. That led to the depravity we see at work in ourselves and others. And I think because we sense that depravity in ourselves, we feel shame. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, as soon as they sinned, they felt shame, and they tried to hide it. And so really, shame is lurking as a powerful enemy to us in our depravity, as damaged souls in our world. And one of the things we try to fight that sense of shame with is contempt. Contempt for ourselves or contempt for others. And again, we see that in the garden, right? Adam, Eve, they hid. God shows up. He's like, Adam, what's going on? He's like, well, that woman that you gave me. There's the contempt of others to hide, to distract from the shame that he's feeling. And we do the same thing. Because if contempt, right, contempt at its core is exposure, It's this fear of embarrassment. It's this even dreaded terror that we're going to be exposed. Our shortcomings, our physical blemishes, our failures, the sins, the wrongs, even the evils we've done, the evils and wrongs done against us that make us feel damaged. We have this fear we're going to be exposed, defenseless, and naked. And so if shame can freeze and terrorize us, contempt is this energy we can use in our fleshly being to try to run and hide, to try to run and hide from that shame. It's right, it's kind of like a smoke and mirrors tactic. If I can put all this time and energy into other people's moral failures, look at what they're doing wrong, look at that shortcoming, then maybe you don't have, maybe I don't have the time and the energy to sit with my own shame, my own discomfort with my embarrassments, with my failures, with the abuses done against me. So contempt's a strategy we use to try to deal with this world where we know we're out of control. And that's whether we're in a majority group or a marginalized group. So what would be the gospel response to shame 
to stereotyping, to divisions. I think the gospel response to stereotyping and shame and contempt is those verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel response to shame, to contempt, to stereotyping is the power of God. Shame makes us want to run and hide and blame others. The power of God gives us the strength and the courage to turn and face the abuse, the shame, the stereotype, the illness, and to grieve, to grieve the wrong and to grieve the sin and to grieve the damage done. I think the strongest picture, and if you've ever sat in conversation with me, you've probably heard me say this before. I think the strongest picture of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows the shame of the cross that's before him. He doesn't want it. But because he knows and has the power of God, because he's confident of who his heavenly Father is, he has the courage not to numb or distract or do smoke and mirrors against others, but to face that shame and to submit himself in trust with the Father. The second aspect of a gospel response to stereotyping and contempt and shame is knowing that salvation is for everyone who believes. All of us have the same root core problem. It doesn't matter what social group you identify with. We all struggle with the same things. We all have that depraved nature and our need of Jesus Christ's atonement. What Paul is trying to tell the Gentile and the Jew who can't get together over what they're going to eat, are they going to eat meat or not, or what day are we going to get together on, is the same thing that he's trying to tell us. We all justly deserve the wrath of God and his judgment because we all have denied God's power, though it's clearly displayed in creation. We have gone after idols as our source of hope, like Laura shared a little bit about things we go to, whether it's our health, people, substances, what we own, rather than to God. And immorality and pain follows. But too often we're looking at the other groups, immoralities and moral failures, and not looking at our own. Which again, self-righteousness. And the last aspect, I think, that is a gospel response from these verses to shame and contempt and stereotype is that righteousness is through faith, right? When we find ourselves opposed to people, don't you find yourself, at least I find myself being like, I am right. I want people to see I am right. Righteousness is right standing with God. And George talked a little bit about this last week. One aspect of righteousness is it's an attribute of God and it's a gift of God that he gives us 
through faith. And this is something that the Jews struggled with understanding that I think people still today understand. Old Testament Jews were never made righteous by works of the law. Through faith, they obediently obeyed the law, and that is what made them righteous. Moses, at the end of life, I think this is maybe the strongest support of that. Moses, at the end of his life, at the end of Deuteronomy, he's telling the nation of Israel, as they're about to go into the land, he's about to go be with the Lord, he's prophetically saying, when you get all these blessings and you get all these curses, know that it's meant to bring your heart back to God. What he is most concerned about is not if you obey these things. You know, like sometimes I hear people like, oh, they're going to still obey kosher food laws and Levitical laws. That's great if you want to do that, but that doesn't mean it gives you blessings. It was all about faith. Moses is saying the blessing and the curses are meant to direct your hearts back to God in faith. That's what God has always been most concerned about. Righteousness comes through faith. This summer, we went through a series on hospitality. This fall, we're going through Romans, because Romans shares with us the power to do hospitality, to be hospitable. We aren't ever going to come to the table and overcome the stereotypes and divisions that happen in our society if we are not focused on the power of God that comes through Jesus Christ, through faith, through salvation for everyone. But I think we have to be clear, too, on what is the gospel. If it's the power of the gospel that brings us together, what is the gospel? The gospel is simply that at the right time, God sent his son who is fully God and fully human to enter our world of depravity and to take on every illness, every abuse, every rejection that we will ever go through and more, and then go to the shame of the cross and satisfy the wrath of God for us. When he said it is finished, there's nothing else that needs to be done. His death was enough. But being fully God, he could not be held down, and he resurrected. And I think, I think it's in Galatians where it says, um, when the time had fully come. That's an important part. The gospel didn't just start when Mary was told by an angel that she was expecting the promised Messiah. The gospel did not just start when Ezekiel was told that God's spirit would one day enter man's heart. The gospel did not just start when David was told that he would have an offspring with an everlasting kingdom, which is where a lot of Jews today still put their hope. The gospel did not just start when Abraham was told his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The gospel started in Genesis 3. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, as soon as God spoke the curse of sin, God promised the good news, the gospel, that he would send a promised child who would crush the curse of sin. And today, the way we come together from all our different social groups, whether you shop at Walmart or Whole Foods or wherever, and love our enemies, the only way we cross that dividing wall of us versus them is by the power of that gospel. 
we come to the table when we recognize Jesus as the conqueror of our common enemy. And we get to participate in that victory, in that victory through the empowering of the Holy Spirit when we come together. And I just wanted to end with um, a quote from Rosaria Butterfield's book that we looked at this summer with hospitality. And she said, you know, we have no business of asking others to be different if we ourselves are not willing to be different. And we can be different through that power of the gospel. So join with me as we pray, and then we'll do some question and answers.